I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light on Life Through, episode 106, in which I'm going to read for you a little bit of my new novelette, Marilyn and Monet. Now, this comes from a reading of Marilyn and Monet that I did on July 15th, 2017 at ReaderCon, a science fiction convention in Quincy, Massachusetts. So here's the reading. I hope you enjoy. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I'm Paul Levinson, and I'm probably best known for my novel, The Plot to Save Socrates, which is a time travel story. And I've written lots of other time travel stories of all sizes. Uh, Short, short stories of a thousand words. The Plot to Save Socrates is actually part of a trilogy of novels, followed by A Burning, Alexandria, and Chronica. I've written novellas and novelettes and many short stories. Some of them are related, some of them are not related. What I'm going to read for you today, or what I'm going to read part of for you today, is a brand new novelette, which I finished just recently. Uh, it's about 10,000 words, and it's entitled Marilyn and Monet. So here we go. Marilyn and Monty walked off the lot of the misfits in the hot summer of 1960. There's a song in my head, she said to Monty, in that breathless voice that she sometimes used even off camera and stage. That stupid teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini, that song's been driving me crazy, Monty said with an exaggerated pout. No, something else, Marilyn laughed seductively. About my being sexual, she explained, and she pronounced the word with an exaggerated British accent. Sexual. Well, you are, Monty said. So someone wrote a song about you? Who? Author? No, not my husband, Marilyn said. He hates me now. Monty put a consoling arm on Marilyn's shoulder. People find people they hate very sexy all the time. Maybe even more, he said. You don't really find me sexy, Marilyn thought to herself about Montgomery Cliff. You don't react to me that way, and that's why I love you. I can really trust you. But if not your husband, then who, Monty asked. You heard this on the radio? What's the name of the song? No, not on the radio. In my head, Marilyn replied. And I'm not sure about the name of the song. Hmm, Monty said. But you sure it's about you? He asked teasingly. I mean, not that you are the sexiest being in the known universe. Marilyn squeezed his hand. The beginning of the song is saying goodbye to me by my real name, Norma Jean. 
Marilyn sipped Don Perignon champagne in her room at the Mapes Hotel in Reno, Nevada, and looked at the watercolor on the wall. It was by Monet, a common reproduction, she could tell, but it spoke to her, shimmering as if painted in tears, mirroring the tears so often on her face these days. She'd heard somewhere that some Frenchman had defined photography as rescuing images from their proper corruption in time. If that was true, then it seemed to her that impressionistic paintings like this Monet did just the opposite, pulling her right through time at its corruptions. She certainly felt corrupted now more than ever before, and that was an actual fact. There was a knock on her door. It was Peter Lawford. She hugged him. He felt so thin, like a leaf quivering in her arms. He was well cast and the thin man on television, or maybe she was the one who was quivering. He smiled at her, that rich incandescent smile, and offered his hand. Come, he said in his British baritone, there's someone who wants to see you. Who? Marilyn asked quietly, though she thought she knew exactly who. You'll see, Lawford answered with equal quietness. They drove in Lawford's car to the local bar. Elvis's Don't was playing on the jukebox. Goes something like this. Don't, 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 don't be that way. Marilyn was aware of her body swaying, almost of its own volition to the sensual strains of Elvis's voice. Lawford gestured to a table to the far side of the room. Marilyn was surprised. Seated at the table was one man, even thinner than Lawford, and, unlike the suave actor, as nervous as hell, not the man she had expected, his brother. The music suddenly changed. Whether on the jukebox or just in her head, Marilyn couldn't be sure. It was that singer who had made the record, Teenager in Love. Marilyn loved that. She always felt like a teenager when she was in love, which was just about always with one man or another, but the voice wasn't singing that song. It was something much more heartrending. It was about looking for Bobby, the man who was seated at the table she and Lawford were now approaching. Marilyn stood as, Bobby stood as Marilyn approached, took her hand and asked her to dance. They'd met a few months earlier, but this was the first time he'd asked Marilyn to dance. Lawford just smiled, took a seat, and summoned the waiter for more alcohol. Bobby and Marilyn danced slowly to the music. She heard that same song in her head now, over and over again. It almost sounded like a dirge. The song mentioned Abraham, then Mark, then John, then Bobby. Marilyn knew no one named Abraham or Mark, yet she felt as if she should. 
she wondered if Bobby was hearing the same song. If not, what was he dancing to? He ran his hand down her back. It felt good, a lot like his brother John's. They swayed to the music, but the song was starting to make her crazy. Do you hear that? She finally asked Bobby softly in his ear. What, song? Yes, she answered, it's strange. It's a new version of Over the Rainbow, Bobby said. I, I find the harmony quite evocative. Yes, Marilyn said, and what she had been hearing now seemed to melt into Over the Rainbow, which had words about something melting, as Marilyn's face melted into tears, which she hoped would be absorbed without too much notice into the blue cotton shirt on Bobby's shoulder. She looked over Bobby's shoulder at a glass of rosé on an unoccupied table. They were indoors, but she could see the sun setting in the glass. She woke the next morning with a throbbing headache and a world of misgivings. She looked again at the Monet above the table. It had captured light from a lovely day that no longer existed. Was her brain now somehow an antenna that captured music from bad days, which didn't exist yet at all? Arthur, her husband, might know, even though she was sure that he soon would no longer be her mate. She laughed to herself sarcastically about the term. Arthur Miller had never been her soulmate, as that poet, maybe it was Coleridge, she read him in high school long ago, had put it. No, no, Joe was her soulmate and always would be, but Arthur had the brains. He was the smartest man she had ever known. If anyone could understand what was going on now in her brain, Arthur Miller would. There was a phone on her night table by the bed and another phone on the dresser across the room. She thought about calling Arthur from her bed. Normally she liked talking to men this way, especially in the nude, but she didn't feel like that today. She rose, walked by the window, and looked at herself in the long mirror on the wall. The sunlight seeping through the curtains worked well against her back. She smiled. She had something of the director in her. Someday she'd like to direct a movie herself if this insane life of hers ever gave her enough time. She enjoyed the sight of her body in the mirror. However disordered her brain might now be, her body was still fine. She sat by the phone and wished that there were pictured telephones already, like the one she had heard they were working on at Bell Labs. She would love to call Arthur and have him see her like this. He'd like that, or, or maybe not, he, he never knew her. She rose again, put on a negligee, sat back down by the phone and called him. Hello, Arthur Miller answered. His voice sounded good. It's me, Marilyn said, sounding a bit more like a little girl than she intended. Oh, hello, Arthur said again. I was just thinking about you. Ordinarily, that would have been welcome, but something in the tone of his voice said otherwise. I wanted to talk to you about something, Marilyn said. Me too, Arthur replied. Why don't you go first? No, you, Marilyn said. 
Arthur took a slow breath. I've been thinking we should stop prolonging the agony and end our marriage. Don't you? The songs about death in her head seemed to subside after that, maybe because the barbiturate she increasingly dosed herself with to go to sleep had shut down that part of her brain. But she needed those pills. They gave her precious time. She liked the fact that her makeup could be put on when she was still sound asleep on drugs in the morning. She usually remembered to put on a negligee before she went to sleep, but she enjoyed thinking about people looking at her when she was in dreamland, having their own dreams about her. Clark died shortly after the misfits was finished. She'd had no premonitions, heard no songs in her head about that. Maybe because her world had changed. Arthur was gone. Joe got her out of the loony bin hospital and they were friends again. All seemed to be going tolerably well until the night of the president's birthday celebration at Madison Square Garden in May 1962. Marilyn had on the perfect dress sheer and shimmering with thousands of rhinestones, reflecting and refracting a light, a soft and seductive second flush riding on her. She worked out a little shtick with Peter. He'd introduce her several times during the ceremony, but she would wait until just the right time to appear on stage, all to ratchet up the excitement carefully kept track of the number of faux introductions. Okay, she was set to walk out on stage after the next one. Peter introduced her as the late Marilyn Monroe. The audience laughed and applauded. She assumed the president was laughing too, but the ad lib shattered her. It wasn't part of the routine. The word late clanged loudly in her head and seemed to confirm all the premonitions she had been having about her mortality the past few years, and now about the president and his brother Bobby, too. She had intended to sing, Happy Birthday, Mr. President, with a quick tempo and a zest. But she walked up to the microphone, soaked in the applause, and delivered her song, like a zombie. That's the end of part one, and I see there's time for part two, so I'm going to continue. Part two. Claude Monet looked at his dear wife Camille on her sickbed. Her face was whiter than the sheets, stripped of their color by the tuberculosis, which now combined with other ailments to daily sap her of her young life. In the blizzard of pale that confronted him, he thought of his countrymen, Louis Pasteur, and all the marvels of medicine he perfected. But no cure for his wife was yet among them. And now her time would soon be at an end. With all the many wonders of this great 19th century, it still had a ways to go in conquering the many age-old enemies of humanity. Monet thought about color, which was always in his mind in one way or another. Life was color, death was its absence, and lack of all color was not to be mistaken for an appealing whiteness in living skin tone. 
His friend of Renoir had captured that beautifully in his news. Monet had never attempted to paint a nude. Not out of respect for his wife, as some had suggested. Not because of some moral prohibition. To the contrary, Monet thought that the road to immorality resided in not following one's artistic vision. No, no, Monet had never painted a nude because as best as he could tell from the many models he had seen unclothed in the galleries of friends, none had the subtle texture of color that he craved for his paintings. The closest he had seen was his friend Pierre Renoir's evocative Nude in the Sun, finished just about three years ago in 1876, the same year in which Camille had first become ill with tuberculosis. There was something about the face, that expression in that painting, ironically not the body, which spoke to Monet. It seemed to reach out to him from some blurry eternity. The model, Anna LaBeouf, just 20 years of age and Renoir's mistress, was more appealing, more special to Monet's eyes than was Renoir's previous beauty, also his mistress, Lise Trehat. It was also not missed by Monet that Anna's very surname, LeBuff, spoke of nudity in American slang, in the buff. And something in the back of Monet's mind said maybe Trehat did too, but he wasn't sure of that. For some reason, Monet thought about Anna a lot in the months that followed, and he decided to go see her. He was sure Renoir would not mind. The two men had literally sat side by side and painted the same exact scene, and Monet was pretty sure that the reason he wanted to see Anna was not because he wanted to paint her or bet her. He just wanted to see her in the nude. He met her at the cafe. She was not naked, she was wearing a soft lilac dress that made it easy for Monet to imagine how she would look with no clothes. She was sipping wine and reading a book of poetry, Les Fleurs de Mal by Charles Baudelaire. In the late afternoon sun played with the ringlets of her hair. Monet noticed immediately that her curls were darker than they appeared in Renoir's painting. He smiled. He knew that he and no painter was immune to taking liberties with the views of people and things captured on canvas, especially when it came to imbuing them with more sunlight. He took her hand and kissed it. She smiled at him with rose-petaled lips. I'm a great admirer of your work, she said. Thank you, he replied, and took a seat, and I of yours. A waiter approached with a glass of Bordeaux from Monet. Anna was sipping something lighter. You came here to talk about putting me in one of your pictures? Anna asked, still smiling. Pierre would have no objection. Monet tasted his wine and nodded his approval to the waiter who bowed and left. I like getting right to the point, Anna added with an even bigger smile. I do as well, Monet replied and returned the smile, but no, your portrait is not exactly what I would like to do with you. She looked at him now quizzically with a different kind of smile. You really do like getting to the point, don't you? 
And she laughed and it sounded like summer rain. Monet laughed a little too. No, not that either, he said. And actually, painting you may not be that far away from what I would like to do. Now I'm confused, Anna said, and regarded Monet even more quizzically. Monet sipped his wine and looked. I'd like to see you in the mood, with an eye towards deciding if I might want to paint you that way. Anna opened her mouth but said nothing. I hope you do not find that prospect insulting, Monet said. Auditioning me to be your model for a new painting? Anna replied, no. I am nothing but flattered by the prospect and its potential for making me immortal as one of your subjects. I'll pay you, Monet began. Absolutely not, Anna said, and wagged a flirtatious finger at Monet. I don't take money from such good friends of good friends. Thank you, Monet said, sighing in relief. When can I come see you? I have all sorts of unbreakable appointments this month, Anna replied. How about two weeks from Tuesday? Would the morning light suit you? Indeed it would, Monet replied. Monet got the news three days before that appointed Tuesday. Anna had been felled by a sudden attack of smallpox and had died. He found it hard to paint anything, let alone a nude in the excruciating months ahead. Anna's death seemed a rebuke to him, as if the cosmos was saying no to what he had intended to do with her. The universe seemed to be telling him, you exceeded your bounds. No one, not even you, can capture that kind of beauty on canvas. Camille's condition worsened too. Her soul finally left her in September. She was just 32. Monet painted her lifeless face. The tears in his eyes gave the watercolor a texture he had never seen before. Monet stared at the portrait and considered. Death had now robbed him twice. First of the nude he had never painted, now of his sweet wife. Painting was supposed to be about the immortal, but everything Monet had touched, or wanted to touch, seemed to turn into fleeting ashes, like the thinnest of paper in flame. We have just a few more minutes, so I'm just going to read a few more paragraphs from part three. Part three. Marilyn walked along the beach in Contra Costa, California, and gazed at the quiet Pacific. The July colors were especially pastel and beautiful, like most of the sunsets in this part of the world. She was thinking about the tequila she had sipped not long ago with Emilio Fernandez, El Indio, a mustachioed Mexican director. Something about this sunset and its colors spoke tequila to her. She even heard a song in her head about tequila, but she wasn't sure if it was just another sunset or another sunrise. If it was about another sunset or another sunrise, and she was glad it wasn't about her death. 
she thought about walking here naked and jumping into the ocean like she had in that swimming pool scene in Something's Gotta Give. She thought about swimming out as far as she could until she passed out from sweet exhaustion and tequila and her body washed up slick and nude and tempting on a beach somewhere. Imagine the press of discovery like that would generate. Marilyn in the morning had walked out to sea. That would be bad. She looked at the last of the sunlight and the sparkling necklace it made on the water. It was a necklace fit for a princess. Suddenly, unbidden, that goodbye Norma Jean song began playing off the water. Except now the lyrics were somehow different. They were about a fallen princess named England's Rose. What did this mean? Marilyn had once been in a movie with a prince, with Olivia, but she had played a showgirl, not a princess. She cleared her head and the music stopped and she wasn't sure if she actually had heard that song or she was now just remembering an illusion. She kicked off her sandals and put a tentative foot into the warm water. It felt good, comforting but she didn't take her clothes off. She didn't jump in, she didn't want to die. She looked at the mauve, mauve colors, literally watercolors in the water. She didn't especially believe in life after death and wanted to be alive to continue taking in these lavenders, baby pinks, and azure blues. She walked a little further on the shore and sat on a big rock. Its moss made a convenient cushion she had a transistor radio in her purse, and she felt like turning it on, but knew it wouldn't be playing the music she wanted to hear. Very different from what had just been playing in her head in the water. You didn't hear that old music very often anymore. Not, been she, not since she'd been a doe-eyed girl two decades ago. She played the music on her turntable mind instead. This time, deliberately, as she looked out at the rippling mirrors of water. Where had it gone? Glenn Miller's in the book. It was all rock and roll now. Where had Glenn Miller gone? Disappearing like that in that plane over the English Ocean near the end of the year. Where had that girl named Norma Jean gone? She was not here on this shoreline. She impulsively turned on the radio. She realized there was a song she wanted to hear and thought she had a chance of hearing. Ackerbilt's Stranger on the Shore. But it wasn't playing either. She played that mournful clarinet in her imagination instead. She could hear Ackerbilt's tongue, wet on the woodwind reed. She could feel it in her ear. She saw a rocket ship sail straight up to the moon, but there was no moon outside. It was morning, and she didn't know what she was seeing. She was Marilyn in the morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. And with that, I'll conclude this introductory excerpt from Marilyn and Monet. If you want to know what happened in the story, I just finished writing it. I have no idea where it's going to be published. With any luck, it will somewhere, someday. Thank you very much. The Light on Light Through Podcast. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that reading of Marilyn and Monet. You can find out more about that story, including how to read more of it, where to buy it if you're interested, on the show notes for this episode of Light On, Light Through. And I'll be back here soon with another episode of this podcast. In the meantime, enjoy. Athens, 2042 AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Paul Levinson's Silk Code, about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries.